Welcome to the Cult House Podcast. I'm your host, Roger Riddell. I just want to take a minute to thank you for checking out this show and also give you a little bit of background on what I'm looking to do here. So uh, I'm aiming to have two episodes a month featuring a long-form conversation with a different musician, writer, artist, comedian, wrestler, uh, basically anyone who does anything in a field where success is kind of dependent upon building a cult following, hence the name. Uh, so if you dig what you're seeing, go ahead and like and subscribe. Uh, I'm working on getting uh, audio-only version of this onto Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and so on. My first guest this week is Eddie Gobo. He's a good friend from Chicago who is the former vocalist of the band Jarred Loose, currently sings for the band Something Is Waiting. They were kind enough to let me use their song Hippies Become Lawyers as the theme for this show. So I am supremely thankful for that, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation. This entire friendship is built on a foundation of me talking shit about you on a blog. <laughs> That's true, and now 10 years later, we're on a, your first podcast. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, it's, first of all, it's not, it's not too late to turn back. If you're, if, if this podcast thing isn't for you, you're only 30 seconds into it. No, I think this is going to be a good, a really good show. I'm interested to be on. I'm thankful to be on the first episode. But you're right, man. I, I thought about this before today. Um, people don't know our history. It literally started with you ripping on me, for, for lack of a better description, in a review of my band. And then we just kind of hit it off from there, which is usually the way you don't start any type of friend relationships. But that was what fueled it. Negativity, essentially, which is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, like literally uh, six or seven months after that, you were offering to let me live in like your spare room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what had happened was for all your, well, all your listeners, basically my band played a show. I it was in a band called Jarred Loose at the time. It was actually our first show. And it was with, it was in Chicago when you lived here with the Atlas Moth at a club called Ultra Lounge, which no longer exists. And it was our first, it was our first gig. And it was it was a well attended show for sure, and there was this was a and I'm sure we'll get into the Chicago scene or whatever, but this was when the Chicago scene was really about to just burst. Everyone was everyone had a lot of eyes on it, so it made sense that someone would come out and maybe write a review of the show. That happened actually quite often in that band very early on, but it was our first gig, and then I think you said something very complimentary about the band. Kind of like we didn't sound like it was kind of our first gig. It sounded maybe like we, we'd been around the block a little bit. And then there was me as a vocalist, particularly a front man that was doing my whole front man shtick of, you know, basically cutting a promo between songs of like I'm a wrestler and kind of I'm almost playing a pseudo character on stage, if you will. And then uh, I think you were blindsided by the fact that I thanked you for the for writing the review. I, I saw it online, obviously, and then I shared it. And then I said, thanks for the write-up. And then it kind of went from there. Yeah, you offered to give me a t-shirt. <laughs> anyone who's listening to this, anytime someone does anything positive or negative involving any type of media, I back it. As long as it, the one thing I don't back is when it's disorganized and um, says things in it where they're uh, very naive. Uh, I, I will read reviews where it says, I don't know, man, I can't explain it, but I don't like this. And then I'm, I'm saying to myself, if you can't explain it, then don't be writing about it, you know? And I remember whatever you wrote, I'll have to try to find it. It's 10 years, you know, removed from it, but it was at least, it made some sense to me. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. And a good uh, review's a review, you know? I, I was stoked on it. For, first show, first review, I'll take it, you know? Yeah, I don't even know if that site's uh, up anymore. Cause that blog, I was calling it uh, heavier than your mom. And I don't think I can yeah. even get away with that today. I'm pretty sure you get canceled for mom jokes now, but uh, 
Uh, I've always appreciated a good mom joke. Um, you're right. You do get canceled for that. And I think that, <laughs> but back then, 10 years ago, yeah, you could, you could uh, have your mom joke in your title, your blog. So. Yeah, no, the, uh, the best one that I've ever read that no one's ever going to be able to top for me was the ClickHole article where the title was, um, I wore a fat suit for a day so that I would understand what it's like to be your mom. <laughs> that's a good one i thought of uh click holes fun it you know it's not as good as onion and i thought of a really good onion one which the same I know thing click holes just onions good. version of buzzfeed same company okay okay uh i'm looking forward to an onion coming up every time every year around this time around mother's day they have that one where it's i gotta get the phrasing right but it's uh mom mom is uh gets breakfast in bed after getting eaten out <laughs> That's always my favorite, and I can't, I wait for it every year around Mother's Day. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, they've got those those standards that they dig up like every year, right around the same time. I know, and uh, they're it's super fun. It sucks though, man, because I love the onion, I really do. But the hard times, as especially in our world, what we what we like has just become such a force, and they're so good, and. We actually, I don't want to reveal who he is because I, he might be someone that, I don't know if that world wants to keep it quiet, but we have a, we being our band, my band Something's Waiting, as a friend who writes for them. And I threw, as soon as I get him in, in my uh, close proximity, I start throwing headlines at him. Would this go over well? And he always likes them. It's just a matter of, I never took that step into writing for hard times. But I appreciate anyone, anyone who's written one of them, you're great. They're so fun. You know, I um so I wrote for the AV club for a bit, like right around the time that we first met too. And I was always disappointed that I could never get anyone there to connect me with anyone on the onion side of things so that I could pitch ZZ Top donate beards to locks of love. Pretty good. Um yeah. I thought of a ZZ Top one, which is ZZ. All right, there's a there's a little bit of a back story to this one, which means it's not that good. There's a indie artist named ZZ Ward. And I said, ZZ Top pissed at ZZ Ward because they're no longer the last stop in this in like the CD aisle or the record aisle. Because now ZZ Ward alphabetically is behind ZZ Top. Uh, well, the joke, good, that right? joke, well, it's dependent on uh, people understanding what a record store is, though. And I and I <laughs> when I phrased when I phrased it this now I said CDs as well, so no one yeah. understands what CDs are anymore. <laughs> Give it like a few years and everyone's going to come back around to seeing CDs as like the premier format. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be laughing my way to the bank, man. I got all every CD I ever bought is still in my home in a closet, organized, uh, boxed up. And I was if I ever take a trip down memory lane and I look at I used to write myself notes and CD booklets and I'd be like, listen to this song or this is interesting. And this was my childhood. I, I focused so much on CDs. I love them. And CDs still really sound the best. And I know this because uh, it depends. I'm just saying this. Technically, vinyl could sound the best, but you got to have a banging system for it to, to work. And I go to people's homes and they have these crossly uh, turntables that they buy from a Walmart or Amazon and they sound like complete shit. And I'm like, you need banging speakers, you need everything, blah, 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 blah. But everyone has a car that could at least get the job for the most part done with the CD. And it sounds really good. And MP3 sound like shit in a car compared to a CD. You know, I've never jumped onto the whole vinyl thing because I've got over 300 CDs. And as soon as I buy like one vinyl record, I'm going to want to replace all 300 of those CDs on vinyl. Correct. And what I do is this, which is one, I used to collect vinyl back in the day, but I need all what I feel are the classics in my collection of vinyl. So I got all the kisses, the like the early kisses, the 70s kiss, Sabbaths, uh and then i go into my world which is motley crew death left poison i got all that shit and then the newer shit that my friends bands put out certainly have a place in my collection and then it kind of goes from there so if i'm not really 100 percent sold on the record and they're trying to sell me a 40 dollar gram um fucking sleep vinyl or whatever i might take or leave it because i don't really don't need that yeah the one vinyl that i've uh actually like been kicking myself for not buying was that last moth record because they had that whole special package with it 
Yeah. And there was a vinyl I purchased recently, which was, I want to say through Kenmo from Kenmo. I haven't received it yet, but it was a special European pressing or something. And they just found some copies. And I just said, all right, now I need to buy this because it's hard to get your hands on the really rad copies. And I know this because the last something is waiting record. We had a swirl vinyl that got sold out right away. And now people are coming up to me two years removed from it saying, hey, have you found any extra copies that I'm like, no, they're long gone. They were gone like by the record release show. So yeah, the limited edition cool vinyls are what make it special. When you get the black vinyls, it's all about if you like listen to vinyl and it's usually a weed thing. So it's people like to have their weed rituals. You throw on first side of an LP, you whatever, smoke with your girlfriend if you if you have one of your roommates or whatever. And then you pretty much don't get to the second album aside until maybe the next day, but it's a ritualistic thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you mentioned something is waiting. Uh, Y'all are working on a new album right now. Uh, how far along is that? It's in the infancy stages, but actually you, like a lot of people had, no, we didn't tell anyone we were recording. Uh, and it's, there was a reason for that, which was as soon as you announce that you're recording a record, literally people are hitting you up six weeks later and they're, and they're looking for a release date. And it's, it's not that world really anymore. And I always compare it to the answer is somewhere in the middle for most bands between the punk bands that were record and mix and master in one night, classic LPs, and then uh, uh, some Trent Reznor, the, uh, like look at Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile. I forget how long that, that took to write and record and the whole thing, but it was years. The answer is somewhere in the middle for a lot of bands and that's kind of us. So we just didn't want to feel like we were on the clock from the jump, especially with us not being able to play shows. And I think it's shows are kind of around the corner, to be honest with you, at least in Chicago, a couple months away for sure. I know some places that are actually kind of already booking. And I know that we're going to start getting emails left and right. But we were worried at the time that if we would have um, sort of fast tracked it, we wouldn't be able to release it without or we have to release it without being able to play shows for it. And you got to talk to these bands that have done that during COVID. Uh, if it worked out for them, releasing a record while a pandemic was going on, it was probably more ears got on the record, but at least way less people were able to embrace it because the live show is key to it. So we just didn't know what was going on. And we went into this, we wrote all through COVID. We went into the studio and we're right now, we're 100% done with the drums. And we start going into guitars and eventually vocals from there. And you're probably going to see it. You're going to see the record out sometime within within one year of me talking to you now. I could guarantee that. I just don't know where in that the span of that year. Yeah, and like you've got a lot of audio samples and things like that on your album. So at yep. what point are you like kind of gathering those kinds of things? And do you think of those things before you write the song or like after you write the song? Like do the audio samples that you pair with the song are they things that you heard that kind of uh led to you writing a song or vice versa is a mix of both great point um, or great question there is always been first of all i hate doing anything where i don't have the ability to get side of sort of creative in the process so there'll be like i i if i want to watch a movie for example and i watched many movies during COVID, and actually i will say this I'm so I'm getting stoked and we could talk about some films that came out recently, but I was so stoked. Like I I've seen probably about eight movies during COVID that were newer movies. Just watch them in my house that I think are great. I watched one this week that floored me. Basically. I loved it. And it was sound of metal. If you haven't seen that, have you seen it? Nah, I've heard, uh, I've heard kind of mixed things. Dude, it is. I loved it, man. And I was so stoked not to get sidetracked that, uh, Riz Ahmed is the lead actor and his performance was amazing. He he's got nominated for um Academy Award for Best Actor for that. It's an awesome film, man. I I I applaud it. I think it rules and I think it's the first film where it shows your lead character being part of a legit underground band, basically. And oh, and it's not like hacky, where it's um and I love the movie Green Room, which came out five years ago at this point, if you've seen that, but it's about, they're in like a DIY punk band and then they get, they're in the wrong club at the wrong time, basically. I'm not gonna spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it kind of comes across as 
all right, we're just doing like the summer tour bullshit thing where we're getting in a van and kind of just, we want to get away from our homes. This comes across as, this movie comes across as they're a legit band doing it and there's still trials and tribulations being in an underground band that's successful, you know? So great movie. But um, when I'm in that mode of just sitting, chilling, watching TV or listening to something, I'm always, I've always got my ears open. And then when something comes across my plate, I always uh, will sit and record it in some way, or the most vapid way of me regurgitating it is, you'll see this so often, is me taking our Instagram story and just me putting a sarcastic comment around something I'm watching. You know, so I just don't want that moment to be for not. You know, I'm not looking for it. I could easily watch a movie and nothing sticks out to me. It's just that I want, if there's a, something funny that comes across the plate, I wanna share it. So yeah, I'm stockpiling clips and everything throughout the course of it. And I already have a decent amount of clips that are gonna piggyback all these songs. One thing that we've never really been, and I think this is what is to our detriment because we don't have a DJ in the band. We really need one. But it's um, we're never able to be a band like a white zombie who uses the clips in the songs. We usually started out with them. Maybe there's gonna be some tracks on this next record that ends with them. It's really hard for us to crowbar in though without someone being there to play it. Yeah, you need to set up like um, uh, like a pedal board that's got like trigger buttons on it, man. We actually have one of our evolutions of the band during uh, the pandemic was I bought a sampler, like a big boy. And I'm technically going to be able to do that during our set because I think I'm the only person who doesn't play anything. So I'm going to be the guy responsible for creating the buttons. <laughs> so this, this is going to come to fruition in some shape or form. And I think it's going to be awesome. I, Dude, especially when... I listen to the bands that I love from a certain era, particularly the 90s. When I hear bands doing that, when I listen to a White Zombie record or all the Manson records with sound clips up the ass, and like particularly the early ones. And I love that. I think it's so charming. Like it's it's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, no, do you remember uh like it was around the early 2000s, the guitarist from Dope, because they used a lot of samples, uh, he had one of his guitars had like a little keytar on it, and I think they could also trigger like the samples through that i do remember that and there's other ways to do it too where technically if you um there was a band that toured with the atlas mob called the ocean and they had samples that ran through their computer which was connected to their click tracks that their drummer played to so they would they would go off if memory serves while they were playing and no one was hitting them it was just the the computer was communicating through an interface to play it at that moment so. yeah no i'm uh, i'm still waiting for that uh that clip from roseanne that you and i kept cracking up at like uh oh, that was like, how was that like 10 10 years ago now no yeah it was a long time ago man i gotta look up when that i think it was that 2014 i think it was if memory serves you were at my home and then we were going we were headed out to go to kumas yeah and then it was like let me record this really quick this is so funny and then you know, it's been uploaded on YouTube, and I guarantee I probably have the over under is probably 5,000 views at this point because it's a hard clip <laughs> to find, but I guarantee people have found it. So, and that's been years. So, yeah, it was uh, the first Something is Waiting album got pulled off of Spotify a couple times over the samples, right? Yeah, it was off, it was over samples, and uh, it was mainly that. And now it's there to stay. And actually, I'm really happy that's there to say, because what happened was during the course of it getting pulled off twice, um, Pete Grossman, our guitarist, re-engineered it. And, or no, he didn't re-engineer it. He mainly, well, he, he did make, remix it a little bit, but he definitely remastered it. So it sounds way huger than the original Spotify version. So it's kind of like a happy um, mistake, if you will, or that they pulled it off. And they haven't pulled it off since. I, I, I hope it's still on there. I haven't checked in a while, but I think someone referenced to me that they've re-listened to it recently, so I assume it's still up there. But yeah, they'll, they'll pull off shit. Spotify is kind of ruthless where they'll take all the money from something and then get pissed at you about not following the rules. And it's just like, well, you're just ripping off bands left and right, you know? Hey, they, uh, they send me a free trial email every other week, and I just never use it because I have no interest in it. Listen, man. What's going to have to happen is, and it's going to happen, 
about, I would, I would say five years from now, bands are going to start getting together and saying, we're not buying into the Spotify thing and we're going totally straight up. You either buy our music or you're not going to hear it because bands are losing so much money and the labels that are the big labels are whoring out their bands purposely because they get money from it, but the bands don't. So talk to, I talk to Mastodon, talk to Lamb of God. I guarantee those bands who get a million plays a year or no more than that, probably on certain songs. I mean, maybe a million plays a month. I don't fucking know. There people listen to them all the time. They're not getting any, any checks from it as opposed to when they play a show, they're selling an LP to someone, you know, and there's, there's a validity in, if I think of an, uh, record rules, I'm going to buy it when I see the band live, even though I've tested it out uh, on Spotify before this, there's validity to that, that, that does exist. But for every person that does it, I think there's maybe one or two that don't. So the numbers are against, are not in your favor. People are gonna be like, if I get it for free, what's the point? Yeah. I mean, you pretty much have to have a solid following for the ticket sales and pretty solid merch game to even be successful on the level that some of those bands are. Without question. The only good thing is this, which is the more successful you are, those bands we just mentioned, you're able to, you don't have to deal with all these tentacles that are working for you in order to facilitate you being successful. And then money doesn't fly out the window as much. If you're, I've seen it, I've seen it work so well, man, where you are a banging underground band that just has it down, that does everything independently and you will clean up, you will make money and you will do it on your own terms. So it's, um, meaning if you don't, if you feel like taking six months off and just not doing anything, you're not going to have a label on your ass saying you've got to do something or else we're essentially going to be pissed at you or we're going to drop you. Or we're going to start looking other ways to make money other than you. And that's awesome. It's, it's a great thing to have a lot of bands that this is the one thing I respect about that. Uh, the culture that would be Maryland death fest culture. If you look at those lineups, a lot of those bands do it the underground way and they make, they do everything on their own terms. Sometimes to their detriment because they will literally, there will be bands on those schedules. I think MDF just um, announced their, what would be their lineup essentially for 2022 because they're not doing it this year, but they have bands on it that literally have taken multiple, sometimes 15 year hiatuses, 20 year hiatuses, multiple times. They just don't fucking do it. And that to me is a fan of a band sucks because I'm like, you can't, you can only take really one full break and then come back, you know, before I'm starting to get annoyed with it, but they do it all the time in that world. But they've, they've all been masters of their crafts, you know, first demo in 1981 didn't come out with anything again until 1999, 15 year break now back at it. Like it's crazy. Like it's, it's, it's almost like their band is part of their life. Like, a, like a kid, as opposed to something that they're jumping around to and just looking to do kind of like every other dude that's, you know, I'm in this band one minute, then I joined another band, then that band broke up. Now I'm in this band solely, but I got a side project and it goes from there, you know, come to Chicago. That's everyone. There's so everyone's in multiple bands. That's just it. Which, which kind of sucks, but it is what it is. Yeah, no. And uh, you book shows in Chicago a lot too. Uh, what do you think the, the whole scene around that is going to look like up there after this is over and things start opening up again? You know, what's funny is this, which is, um, it go again, it goes back to when you used to live here, man, there, um, that was really a golden era for Chicago local music that also facilitated rad, cool underground tours. And it's anything from, you know, I booked so many shows, man, but I used to see rad shows where I'm just like, Jesus Christ. And like, here's an example. The first show that you saw me play, which is essentially the, the um, first time we met, even though I don't think we talked that night at the show. Uh, probably about six months after that, I booked Death Heaven at that same club. All right. So Death Heaven came through. I, you know, I obviously promoted the show and I liked Death Heaven a lot. They... There was probably 30 paid, maybe less. All right. Year and a half later, I want to say Sunbather came out and the rest is history. They became one of the biggest bands in metal, not overnight because they hustled with the years leading up to that, but it was like a fucking light switch. The reason I booked Death Heaven on that one show 
was because about a year before that, I saw them come through what I believe was the first time them coming through Chicago and they played a house, they played a basement. It was them, they were on tour with Kenmo. And I, you know, Stavros and a couple of small dudes were there and there was this place called Albion House. And I saw them play and I was like, this band rocks. Obviously when you guys want to come through again, hit me up, they did. And then before I was booking a show for them, but it was that second record or, yeah, I think it was their second record that really blew them up and the rest is sort of history. But you were, you would get shows like that several times a week. It was always the it bands that were going to be the it bands coming through before they were the it bands. And it was awesome. It was so fucking cool. And then what happened was it caused all the bands in Chicago to take their game up a notch to roll with these bands that were great coming through. And then people would come over from different states and there was a lot of transplants coming to Chicago and they were so psyched to get out and experience live music that they didn't get in their own cities that they grew up in. Uh, there was people coming over here from whether it be Canada or I knew like a, a dude from Europe who's basically spending a whole summer here. And then he's going to shows every night. And it was just the place to be. It didn't hurt that bands like Nakmissium were blowing up around that time. And they were what was looked at as a finger on the pulse of an American black metal band. Everyone just started ripping them off after that. It was probably the um, like Assassin's Record or whatever came out. They were just ripped off. And everyone took that blueprint around. So Chicago was the place to be. Really, really, even the bad shows were good is what I'm driving at. When that honeymoon sort of ended, had a lot to do with the fact that the um, – it, it became, first of all, it became harder to live in Chicago than ever before. Rents went insane. People then said, fuck this shit. I'm going back home. And they took all these things they learned in Chicago and they brought them back to places like Detroit or Indianapolis, Cleveland. And then those scenes got better. But our scenes, because these were the trite and true people of it, got worse. And no one really filled the holes. So all these, this young crop you expected to come up, go to a show right now. It's people that are my age. 35 going to shows and Nate Madden from Immortal Bird, good friend of mine, one of my favorite, one of my uh, best friends that's in a band in Chicago, he'll vent to me about it and be like, where's this young crop? And I go, I don't know, dude. And he goes, but do you remember when we were growing up, we were 21 years old and you couldn't keep us out of a show. We were there like every other night we were going to a show and I go, yeah, I fucking remember it, dude. That's like part of our DNA. And he goes, and the majority of the crowd were all people in their early 20s. I go, yes. I'm like, I find it weird, too. I don't know where these kids, they're hiding in their, their rooms playing guitar. They, they don't find it, uh, the experience of going to a live show interesting. Maybe they're intimidated. But because of that, when shows come back around, you add COVID into the mix or a post-COVID world. Right, like, listen, man, you, sh you could probably agree that it's already daunting, the idea of going from not doing anything in a year for one year into going to a show with 200 people at it. Like that's probably a little scary, right? Yeah. So you add that into the fact that people really don't want to go to shows to begin with. And no offense to the bands in Chicago. So many of them, I know because I'm such close friends with them, haven't jammed through, like for a year. So it's going to take them six months minimally to get back and swing or they're going to suck live you know, or just want to get out and do something. So it's probably not going to be good for the first year, man. And it is what it is. I'm not going to be mad about it because I, I still want to go to a show every now and then in Rage. And I'm sure there's going to be some cool shows coming up. I'm sure something is waiting to be playing cool shows. We were lucky enough to stay in Stroke this whole time for the most part. But it's not, again, if it wasn't like it was before COVID, it's definitely not going to be like what it was after COVID, you know? I mean, like how many venues are still uh, going to be around? Yeah, so luckily, Chicago has been able to keep several venues at least on their last limb, which is very key because when they're on, well, they're if they're on their last legs, all right, they're still there. And right now, again, I advocate, I don't know what DC is like, the DC area is like right now, but Chicago is actually, the vaccines are kind of going around at this point. And that's really, that makes it, people optimistic, very optimistic, actually. So that's why venues are saying, hey, I think we've seen, I think it's now kind of the dawn of this whole thing as opposed to like, you know, you know, the the uh, Batman uh, <laughs> fucking Dark Knight Rises line. But when it comes down to it, they're thinking that this is going to end soon. 
And um, because of that, all the time that they spent selling carryout liquor, for example, or having venue fundraisers, GoFundMe's, they had some, uh, one of the best clubs in Chicago called Livewire had a couple bands. One of them was local age, do a thing where they play the club and there'd be no one there. And they would just have an online fundraiser. And they ended up raising like, I think for that local age show, like something close to five grand for the club. Just cause really nice. And there's a lot of stories like that. A Cobra Lounge, which you've been to with me, they have great food there and they were able to keep their kitchen open and do the carryout shit, you know? So just the little things, Reggie's another example, just the little things kept them afloat. And now with the summer coming, they're going to be able to do shows and then people are going to, I would think, are going to come out and want to spend money, you know, or at least be cool with spending money over tipping a little bit, which I recommend to anyone. If you're looking to go out initially, just, you know, think about the person who hasn't had a proper shift in a year, basically, and help them out a little extra than you would, you know? So I think, I think the complexion is, th there's a couple of venues that did close down. If, if I know that's uh, subterranean, was kind of in the middle. And then um, the one the one spot that closed down, which isn't a venue, is the Three Floyds Brew Pub out in, over the border is closed. Now, I think that hopefully that could reopen, but you know, the casualties in Chicago were minimal compared to what they could have been. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of wondering if, uh, you know, after all this time being stuck inside, people are going to be excited to have anything at all to go out to do, and they'll just like rush out to do pretty much anything. That's a really good point. I mean, we, um, I know this, which was in Chicago, we were on lockdown. We, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, was one of the harshest mayors during all this. Take that as you will. But as far as, this is talking about major city countrywide she was one of the harshest we had nothing going for the city for the first i want to say three months of of covid as i guess we shouldn't have around the summer around june she started uh, lifting like little restrictions we were allowed to like have um like uh, outdoor restaurant experiences and stuff like that still socially distant but she lifted them and then the result was pretty gangbusters everyone started going out and they not only wanted to go out, but they were trying to enjoy summer in Chicago, which is the only three months out of the year that we get good weather, you know? So, but then what happened was we enjoyed our summer, man. And as soon as October hit, like October 1st, with Halloween looming, they cracked down again. And then everything went back down. Now we're getting to the point where it's kind of, for the most part, over as far as them putting harsher restrictions on. That's over. But, you know, there's the patios rolling and it goes from there. Uh, bars like Empty Bottle, for example, which is one of the best clubs in the city, and there was never a, sh a chance of that closing down because the the roots of that place are way too deep, and it's such a great club. They're they're open right now. There's it's just a regular bar, no shows, and there's a capacity which I believe is 50, and for a venue that holds 300 plus, that's enough socially distant space. Probably the majority of those kids might even there's a chance they might have the first vaccination already. So. It kind of works out and i'm sure they're wearing masks between drinks so i think it's relatively safe yeah yeah um i know you're a big zombie fan you've mentioned them a few times uh yeah Bob zombie just came out with his new album uh what'd you think of it you know what's funny is i get shit i've gotten shit for liking rob zombie my whole life period uh it was only cool when up until the tour cycle of Hellbilly Deluxe ended. And then after that, it was over. People, for whatever reason, Hell, I mean, Hellbilly and everything before that is the best shit that he's, he's done. The White Zombie stuff is my favorite stuff. It's my, it's my favorite stuff of the 90s, arguably. Pantera and White Zombie are my two favorite bands from the 90s that aren't grunge. But um, Hellbilly Deluxe is insane. Then when Sinister Urge came out, everyone, especially my sort of uh, tribe of high school uh, friends, started going in the more extreme metal direction, which I also went with them. We all loved Cannibal Corpse. We all loved Napalm Death and stuff like that. I saw Napalm Death for the first time live when I was 16, but I still liked Rob Zombie a lot. And everyone's like, man, you're selling that zombie tip. I'm like, yeah, it rules. 
And then I distinctly remember de defending uh, Sinister Urge to a lot of people saying, yeah, uh, Carrie King does a guest solo and just little, little pieces of flavor that would have maybe got him into it. And everyone's like, done with it. And then it went from there in an even more negative direction. And then it became a parody. Uh, I became sort of a parody because particularly my band Jarred Loose did a set of um, white zombie covers. And then everyone just, I became the Rob Zombie guy in Chicago. Every time Rob Zombie takes a shit, someone has to let me know about it. And then I'm just like, yeah, I know. I'm a Rob Zombie fan. What do you want from me, dude? He's kind of come back around at this point because now nostalgia is cool. But it was a bad, bad thing to go to a zombie show in about a 12-year span where I didn't get looked down upon. Uh, but with this zombie record, I'm glad. first of all, I'm glad that you kind of like Rob Zombie just as much as me, I think, because, dude, that's one of the reasons why we've been able to find common ground in a lot of things, because some dudes we dislike, and he's one of them. You know, I, I, I fucking dig the fact that he's still doing it. And uh, the record, here's the problem. I heard John Five for about a year, who's his guitarist, and probably his, his lead uh, songwriter, if you will, at this point, say that this record was so heavy. And I think... My definition and John Five de John Five's definition of heavy are way different at this point, because he is maybe saying it sounds really energized, and he's mistaken that for heavy. But you and I know heavy music when we hear it. It's it doesn't sound like the new Rob Zombie record. All that said, I'm not ripping on it at all because I love it, and I think that it's so Rob Zombie just doing being who he is, which is he lacks ego and he lacks um, shame for what he's into. And he's totally just become like this almost like pseudo seventies rocker guy. And everything about him is a seventies package now wrapped in new school, hard rock, basically, you know, and he's talking about shit from the sixties and seventies and all his fucking songs. And there's no, it's almost like he's in a time warp, man. And when you have songs that are called Sleazy Rider, which is a, song, a track on the record, there's no way you can mistake that for it being him embracing new culture. It's all throwbacks, you know? So it's pretty interesting. Uh, my favorite song, and it's so, ah, fuck. Here's the problem, another problem, which is if, you, you've, if anyone's listened to the record, the titles are insane. Yeah, even I the title remember the name of the records that he's done for the last few years i can never remember the titles of the albums and that's what's kind of hurt him man because when you heard those early rob zombie records and the white zombie stuff they all had distinct names yeah and him writing this these huge giant some of them work but Hellbilly but, deluxe but, one and Hellbilly deluxe two both have like crazy subtitles to them too like i feel like, I like that was the original titles and then the record labels like yeah, maybe come up with something that's a little bit easier to remember. And he did Hellbilly Deluxe. That's a good point. And actually, the uh, and it goes back to White Zombie, man. Their records were always called something like La Sex or everyone says La Sex or Sisto. And that's true. That's the name of the record. But it was also called La Sex or Sisto Devil Music Volume 1. That's the big, that's the full title of it. Um, and it goes from there. But now I think no one cares about uh, monitoring what he does and doesn't do. And also, I think this is his first record, maybe on Nuclear Blast, if I'm not mistaken. It's a new yeah. record label. So they're not going to fuck with him at all. They're going to say whatever you, even the title of this record, I forget what it's called because it's so long. And I remember saying, if you just cut the title in half, it'd work better, you know? But he's just overly verbose for whatever reason. And that is one of the reasons why I think my favorite song on the record is probably um, Shake Your Ass, Smoke Your Grass. Because it's such, that's the title as it should be, you know? But also, it just is a total Rob Zombie stripper anthem, which is ultimately what he's best at. You know, where it's like, you could uh, you could see a girl rocking out to it and doing like kind of that sticky fun thing that he's always embraced, you know? Which is super fucking cool it's that that's his aesthetic you know it's that again that 70s easy rider aesthetic where it's girls on the back of motorcycles being cute and you know rocking out and they all have a sync look to them but that's my favorite song on the record and also um oh the other god there's there's actually quite a few bangers 
Um, Sleazy Riders. Like, uh, boom, boom, boom a lot. That's a good one. There's one, and I forget the title, because but it's about he. It's something related to witches. And I'm just like, all right, this is cool. That's I said instrumental one, right? What's up? Is that one instrumental? Ah, fuck. He's got a lot of instrumental no. interludes on this one too. There's so many interludes. Yeah, uh, the record's probably a little too long, but that's kind of a lot of Rob Zombie records. I think, you know. Uh, well, it's long, but every song is like three minutes or less. Yeah. It's, it's like there's just a lot of tracks, and some of the interludes probably should have just been part of the track that they're either preceding or like coming after. Um, the, um, the internal damnation of the hollow man or whatever, or uh, howling man. It's, it's not that. That's not the title, but it's how, something howling man, it's, which is a great track. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that there's a sound clip in it where it is like, this is the best machine in the world, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it stops. It's right in the middle of the song. I'm fairly certain that's from the Howard Stern show. <laughs> there was a, um, there, Zombies, who's a huge Howard Stern fan and a huge friend of his, there was a fucking, everyone knows this because it went viral. There was a, uh, before Howard really cleaned up his act on Sirius, there was a machine called the Sibian where they had women ride it. It was an orgasm machine. And they had the inventor of the Sibian on one day. He's a total creep, as you could imagine. And he said that line and they used it. Rob Zombie used it. I'm, I'm fairly certain. And they slowed it down, but he sounds just like that. So I'm going to do some research on it, but that, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. Yeah, no, and uh, you mentioned the whole thing about John Five saying that it was like the heaviest uh, Rob Zombie album that they've done. Uh, with that, like, I, I kind of agree with that. Like his, his context for heavy is probably different than what ours is. Because yeah. uh, like in retrospect he also used to play guitar for rob halford but it was the rob halford techno project yep you know and then i think it was called two and yep. then uh before that he played with like salt and peppa so he's like been all over the musical spectrum so he's got like probably a different definition of heavy david lee roth as well yeah and you're right and john five at the end of the day is him and rob zombie work oh well we're forgetting he was in Marilyn manson as well yeah well he was he was the most talented person that was ever in that band arguably pretty much <laughs> i'm trying to think if there's anyone there no he was the most talented yeah I that's mean, why Fish is talented in the sense that he's pretty much a human drum machine but he's also in rob zombie now yes and um fuck man that's so incestuous uh the thing is this which is john five Twiggy Ramirez is the member of Manson who's, who's always got the most accolades and he's probably a pseudo genius, but John five is definitely more talented. Like Twiggy was a very primitive basis, but he probably had a great songwriting ability or able to do, you know, just be him, you know, and it was, he was cool as shit. He was a character, but John five is a virtuoso, a guitar. He's so good. He's like a top 10. He's, He's certainly a top 10 guitar player in heavy metal. Like right now, he's, he's probably a top three dude. You know, he's, he's, he's amazing. So for them to find each other, it's great. And then him and Rob Zombie grew up and never um, got away from worshiping Kiss or um, Alice Cooper. This, all the 70s stuff that them as kids in their bedroom worship, that's their, that's their bread and butter. So they're two peas in a pod because when a guy like Manson becomes a famous rock star, he could be like, yeah, fuck Kiss, they suck. I know I, I recently rethought about, uh, about when I read Slash's autobiography and they were the same way with Kiss. As soon as they got cool enough to be in Guns N' Roses, they're like, fuck Kiss, they're lame. They, you know, they're, they're not real. And that's, there's some validity in that, but at the same time, it's, it's, it, it's, it's being pissed at Christmas because you found out Santa Claus isn't real. Like you, sh you don't need to be that way. You could say, yeah, I know Santa Claus isn't real, but I still could like Christmas as an adult, you know? So that's how I kind of see it. But Robin, Robin um, and John Fyde never lost that. That's why yeah. those groups are the way they are in this, in this record and such. I mean, the one thing that does suck, I think about uh, being in a band like that for these dudes who are like virtuosos, they're like John Five, is that you can't ever outshine the main guy. So you have to like pull all of your punches musically. Definitely true. And then um, here's the only other thing, which is when you're in a band 
that the the singer is the focal point. The singer is, first of all, when you're the singer is the focal point, the, the band is usually called that person's name. Man, Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, David Lee Roth, so on and so forth. But what happens is eventually those dudes either in the eyes of the public lose it. Um, some of them die. Some of them take long breaks. Some of them go back to their original bands. And then these dudes that were in their bands that wailed for all those years and that were had a cult following are now able to go do their own thing and that's how john five is like just a, basically a pseudo celebrity at this point as far as like he's got his own thing going on when he's not touring with rob zombie he could do guitar clinics which i'm sure sell out super far in advance he could tour and play small clubs he does solo records he does guest spots and he's able to do that because rob zombie and marilyn manson put him on the spotlight you know yeah, yeah, no, Zach Wilde had the same thing in uh, Ozzy. Yeah. So Zach's an example. Also, that dude from, um, what the fuck? Um, all right, so Slash Slash did a record that was a solo record. Slash doesn't sing. Um, and then the vocalist of that band was this guy, Miles Kennedy. Oh, yeah, he and was then, in the band that did uh, Edge's theme song. Yes, like he, so after he was the focal point, he, like he, you know, he's the singer, but not the focal point of Slash's band. They're like, that dude whoops ass. And then Creed broke up simultaneously. And like, hey, dude, let's take your sync. We'll, like, we'll you could be in our band and you'll write these songs and be your own kind of thing. And then Alter Bridge was their band, and that band became huge. And now that guy's a household name. He's a great vocalist, you know. And Slash's solo band will never get back together again because he's going to be doing Guns N' Roses for the rest of his life. So it doesn't even matter. But he's still a household name now, which is cool. Yeah, I never uh, I never could get into Alter Bridge, though. Oh, yeah, it's bad. I yeah. mean, I will listen, I'll re-listen to Creed's first two records every now and again just to see. I don't know why. Just to, like, put me back in that place in time. But it's yeah, I never kinda... was in that place in time. I couldn't, I couldn't get around Scott Sapp's vocals. <laughs> they are so i mean it's like everyone let me put it this way man i know people who ripped on eddie better for being too over the top with his yarler vocals when pearl jam was coming up coming out in 1992 or whatever or 1991 or whatever and then many years later it's eddie better on steroids they're not even close this guy's insane <laughs> with his yarling and his lyrics were so epic but in like kind of like a bad way where it was yeah, they were they were super self-righteous self-righteous yeah that's it yes very self-righteous totally agree so uh but yeah you should revisit those creed records because uh you just should everyone should delve into the late 90s oh i re-listened to saliva recently and uh, <laughs> i was just like dude that's another one that's not that band isn't self-righteous at all but they are just like dudes that partied in a garage in the fucking boondocks and drove around their trucks and shit and they started a band and it just like worked like it's just fucking crazy shit you know um so but i yeah it's it's fun to go down memory lane sometimes with that shit but it hurts you yeah know, didn't uh didn't nikki six like co-write some stuff on one of their albums you know what's funny is this which is right around that time when new metal was huge everyone from that 80s era excluding the big bands like metallica metallica didn't have to do anything with with anyone if they didn't want to talk look at the motley crew guys they all jumped on the new metal uh wagon and just said let us hang out with you so it's record with all those bands summer sanitarium that's a, actually that's a really good point and they didn't have to they could have been taking on taking anthrax on the road or whatever but they're like no we're gonna go with limp biscuit and corn and lincoln park yeah san anger is pretty much a new metal album all right. Yeah. So I guess I guess they did. Yeah. But um, well, my, uh, you see Tommy Lee, who's the drummer in Motley Crue, hanging out with, with Fred Durst in clubs and then he's starting Methods of Mayhem for no reason except to be part of that new metal clique. And they toured and it went over horribly and it goes from there. But Nikki Six, you know, all those guys who kind of had the the uh old man complex where it was like we don't want to not be cool we have to jump on this that's why i always love vince neal and mick mars above any of those motley crew dudes because they just said no we're going to take a break like we'll we'll see when this is time to 
it's time to do the Motley Crue thing again. They didn't want to be like new metal point two point oh guys or tag alongs, you know. I mean, Mick was already an old guy in the eighties too, though. He was uh like Motley Crue was basically his last legs before uh yeah. before he was just gonna be like you know out to pasture, both because of his bone thing and because he was quickly approaching his forties. <laughs> He's still alive too, which yeah. is just insane. I love it. I do this. That's one tour. COVID canceled their tour this summer with uh, Def Leppard and Poison, and they rescheduled it. So now it's coming around this summer, and they're playing Wrigley Wrigley Field. For those of you who don't know, the, that's where the Cubs play. But it's going to be great for me to see Mick Mars one more time. I'm not saying he's going to die. He could live to be 100 and whatever. But it just looked bleak 20 years ago. So it might be borrowed time at this point, you know? So I'm just stoked to see him one more time. You know, he, um, I've seen them twice since the mid 2000s. And he's got kind of like this gangly, like Jack Skellington bred with a spider kind of vibe now. He doesn't move around a lot. I totally get what you're saying. He's super frail. Yeah. And he, it's pretty rad that the dudes in Motley Crue, even Tommy Lee, he's always spinning those sticks and he's got the flippy drum kit. And Mick Mars is stoic, just ripping it up. And he's the most consistent member of the band because he's so focused. And he's not trying to entertain the crowd in that traditional, uh, like, rile up, get in your face, spit on you shit. But uh, I'm just stoked he's doing it. And I really hope that that band could do a couple more tours with him. And then I really just hope that once someone dies, unfortunately, they don't try to piece it together with another guitarist or whatever bullshit, which would suck. All right, that was the first episode of the Cold House Podcast. If you dug what you saw, go ahead and hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you back in a couple of weeks with episode two.